This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fat Tuesday, and it's too bad this isn't a video podcast because you could see the latest in Laura's headwear. She always <laughs> comes into the office to celebrate the holidays. We're having a lunch gathering today before Ash Wednesday tomorrow. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura, as well as Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi back from a day off. And Layla, we didn't get to talk yesterday because you weren't here about the reaction we received to the blowout over the weekend of content on Cleveland's Promise and the call out that people write to county council members to tell them, make sure you reimburse or pay for the specialists that are making a difference in Cleveland schools. So I was pretty heartened by the number of people I heard from that said, I'm doing it. The children are important. I was a little bit disheartened by some of the responses they got from some council members. Some of them had some real bile in them. Uh, Councilman Gallagher, for instance, I think he's still very angry with us about our are blocking them building a jail on a toxic site. But, you know, there's a new toxic site over in East Palestine, so he has options. What did you hear? Well, I, I, as, a, as you did, I, I received a lot of emails from readers who did as, uh, as we suggested, which was send those messages to county council members uh, asking that these uh, support specialists who help kids in Cleveland schools meet their basic needs so they can focus on school and not be distracted by the complications of poverty, that that county council fully fund this program to the, to the greatest of their ability. I mean, this really is a responsibility of the county to uh, meet these health and human services needs. This is the safety net. This is the preventive layer of services that keep the um, Department of Children and Family Services from being inundated with with cases. Um, that case was made very strongly by by Say Yes Cleveland officials, and uh, and we, we well, agree. What I was taken aback with the some of the council responses is they're trying to be divisive. We did our part. There is now our part here. I mean, it's the kids. And what throws me is, is they've been focused on building things like golf clubhouses and dog parks nobody wants and, right. and putting money into road projects that, that governments could get elsewhere while the kids are at the center. And they're, they, they, they try to say, well, we have needs out in the county. Social services were created specifically for kids like this. You don't need the same level of social services in Mayfield or Rocky River that you need in the poverty-stricken neighborhoods of Cleveland. That's why you have social services. It's to bring equity and help the people that are the least fortunate 
catch up. And this idea yes. that we did our part, we need to spend our money elsewhere. It's like, there's not, you're either with the children here who, who, and this is the best promise we've had that we, that Cleveland schools can turn the tide here. This is a great program. It's showing the most promise we've ever seen and they're against it because so they're on the anti side of the children. They say, I'm a supporter of say yes, but I'm not giving it the money. This is why we created social services. It boggles the mind that they right. can stand on the other side of the line when we're talking about helping children. Right. And we know that more than half of the kids in Cleveland schools have had some interaction with DCFS. That means that that's, that system is is very deeply entrenched in their lives. Why let cases get to that level? Let's help families and children meet their needs sooner. Mm -hmm. And that that should be a basic um, a main priority of the county. They why are, I don't know why they're being so myopic about what their role is in in helping families in it, Cleveland. And I, I think yeah. it's almost because we're behind the project and they're still mad at us about how we blasted <laughs> them last year about their wasting money that they're against it. And it's such a silly thing. We're talking about children who could thrive if they just got this. You know, and one of the things they said is, we can't use the, the ARPA money for this. That's one-time money. This is a one-time cost. Chris Ronane is working on a long-term solution to fund this in the future, the county executive. We're just talking about getting them through this year. And it's not that much money compared to how much they have wasted on luxury projects. I don't know. I, I really am right. starting to think we made a huge mistake in reforming government and creating these ward council members because they are not thinking about the county. I said it last week. Tim Hagen, Peter Lawson Jones, Tim McCormick, Jane Campbell, they never thought this way when they were county commissioners. They thought of the county as a whole. They didn't create these phony divisions. And I wonder if we should just mm -hmm. get a ballot question where we abandon the charter and go back to what's in the Constitution with county commissioners. Yeah, I think that when, when you do, I, I'm, you know, I, I've been resistant to this idea of returning to the old way of doing business in Cuyahoga County. But I do think that when you when you carve up the county into districts like this, the, a fiefdom mentality definitely takes hold. And it's almost impossible to stop that way of thinking from occurring. We'll keep banging the drum. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had learned some time ago that Larry Householder, the accused mastermind of the state's big corruption scandal, was scheming to get around term limits to stay in power. Recent revelations so the plan was much more refined than we knew, Lisa. How so? Quite a bit. And the testimony from a former lobbyist Juan Cespedes and others in the House Bill 6 bribery trial showed, painted a narrative that First Energy agreed to help Householder with legislation that would have kept him in office through 2036. And that would have been by resetting the service years back to zero, but setting a 16-year cap which sounds like term limits, but really wasn't. And Suspedis testified that First Energy agreed to back the term limits legislation in exchange for legislation to increase the size and duration of the House Bill 6 bailout. Because as House Bill 6 moved through the legislature, you know, it kept getting shorter and shorter and the money getting smaller. So they wanted to, to lock that in. And uh, apparently this dates back to at least September of 2019, when Householder and his allies dined with unknowingly with undercover FBI agents and a recorded phone call with agents and 
former lobbyist Neil Clark said he mentioned a $50,000 check that the agents gave to him and said, and householder wondered, well, maybe it should go into supporting my term limits ballot issue. And then all of a sudden, Ohioans for Term Limits emerges, this this mysterious nonprofit in February 2020, proposing the first term limit changes since the 1990s. Uh, money was wired next that next month from First Energy to its nonprofit, Partners for Progress, which was just a pass-through because the money just went right through that to Generation Now in the same day, Generation Now being the nonprofit dark money organization that's at the center of this trial. So yeah, apparently they've been talking about it and discussing it for at least a few years, but they got derailed. I mean, they really thought this was going to happen, but then the pandemic kind of put the kibosh on their plans. I don't know. The Republicans in the state house love a bad idea. They're resurrecting the whole idea of reducing the power of the vote through requiring a higher level of voting on constitutional amendments. I wonder if Frank LaRose, the secretary of state, might get behind this one so that they can stay in power. That's what this was about. This was about trying to amass and hold power as long as possible against the will of the people. There are a lot of of people that watch government that think term limits have been bad because you lose veterans who know a lot about the history. So you're constantly getting new people reeducating themselves. Here's the problem. Voters love term limits. Anytime we do polling, anytime there's a question about it, it's something like 70 percent of the voters want term limits because they don't want people like Larry Householder amassing and holding power for the rest of time. Well, and and like I said, this legislation sounded like term limits because they were going to set a 16-year cap. Currently, it's unlimited, but you can only serve eight consecutive years in the House or Senate. So take DeWine. I mean, he's moved through every statewide office, you know, because of the way term limits are set up now. But so, yeah, it sounded like a duck, but didn't really quack like a duck. Yeah, it was very sinister and cynical, which has been the hallmark of state government over these past 10 years. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the hottest shows on television right now is The Last of Us, in which fungal infections have mutated to turn people into something resembling zombies. Normally, when we talk about dangerous infections, we're talking about bacterial infections. But Case Western Reserve University researchers are actually hard at work on fighting a frightening fungal infection. Layla, what is it? We're talking about Candida auris. It's a fungus that's resistant to multiple drugs. It causes serious complications in critically ill patients, and it kills up to two-thirds of the people it infects. So researchers at Case have gotten a $3 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to figure out how to fight this fungus. This fungus was first discovered in Japan in 2009, but it has since spread worldwide. It's, it's most often contracted in hospital settings, a lot like the bacterial infection MRSA, in hospitals where medically vulnerable patients are hooked up to tubes. That tubing can become breeding grounds for fungus, and once it spreads, it gets out of control pretty quickly. It's, it's particularly deadly because it's hard to identify And so many infections go undiagnosed, but also because once it is identified, there's no way to kill it. Some strains are are now resistant to all three of the known antifungal drugs. It's resistant to many hospital disinfectants, too. And it lives on skin and bedding, which allows it to spread easily from person to person. And it's very hard to eliminate from the environment. So this research team 
is evaluating a new drug that's developed by a New Jersey-based biotech company, and it looks really promising so far. So they're going to be doing preclinical testing to prepare it for trials on humans down the road. It is. I did not know that fungal infections had become resistant to medicine because they can turn people inside out. They're they're very very challenging with the symptoms people get. So this is one of the scarier stories we've had in recent weeks. Mm-hmm. I know. It really is. I, I had no Makes idea. You want to check stay out. out of the hospital. Yes, it does. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Check out Gretchen's story. It's on cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. When the tough get going, or when the going gets tough, the tough throw someone else under the bus, Laura? Who, what is Josh Mandel's failed Senate campaign blaming for misreporting nearly $150,000 in campaign contributions, and what are the regulators doing about it? I'm guessing that Mandel does not have a plaque on his desk that says the buck stops here. So, because <laughs> he is blaming his Nicely former treasurer. Played. This is because of the U.S. Federal Election Commission fined him for misreporting these contributions. This was toward his unsuccessful run for U.S. Senate last year, obviously run by, uh, won by J.D. Vance, who went on to be senator. So the FEC says that Mandel's campaign failed to properly report 75 contributions totaling $147,000, and that was made to Mandel and his committee's right ahead of the primary election on May 3rd. And the contributions came within the final 12 days of the campaign. That's when the rules say the candidates must disclose all contributions of $1,000 or more within 48 hours. So now he's got to pay a fine of about $15,000, but he has a negative balance in his campaign account, unlike in past years where he had pretty, he kept his coffers pretty full. He says he is done with politics. So I'm not sure. Good. He's probably going to blame his treasurer and tell the treasurer he has to pay it back. Here's the problem with this. Josh Mandel was the Ohio state treasurer, right? Yes, yes, good point, good point. How how do you turn around and say, oh, I didn't know about this. My treasurer was terrible. You were the state treasurer. You had control over the state's money. You don't really have an excuse here. The other thing is, you should never throw somebody under the bus, right? You, you're the you're the top guy. The buck does stop with you, literally here. Uh, and so I, I just I read this and I thought, man, that guy was a weasel as he ran as a candidate. He's a weasel to this day. Yeah, we haven't tre- heard from the treasurer, right? The guy. No, who's not as far as I know. His name is Thomas Dotweiler, and he's also the treasurer for Republican Jim Jordan. So you got to wonder. Is Jim Jordan going to throw this guy under the bus? And it's the new treasurer who made this kind of very pointed statement to the FEC. She talked about the stunning number of inexplicable reporting errors. I, I don't know. But you're right. It, to name someone and then just like bash them in, in, in an FEC filing, that seems pretty. When, uh, when you were the state treasurer. I mean, yes, come on. You were the state treasurer. the expert on this stuff. We should note that Jim Jordan has had some campaign donation filing problems on his own. It's Today in Ohio. How are some historians in Ohio trying to do right by Rutherford B. Hayes, who had never had an inaugural ball after becoming our 19th president in 1877? Lisa, we should have talked about this yesterday. It would have been more appropriate for President's Day. Right. But this is, and this is a little bit of history I didn't know. Uh, the Hayes Presidential Library and Museums um, is holding an inaugural ball for Rutherford B. Hayes on March 4th at Terra State Community College in Fremont, which is where he's from. Um, I did not know this, but he, he, the ball was not held 
back in 1877 because the election results were in dispute for months. Hayes, the Republican who had run against New York Governor Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, and they needed results from Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. But Hayes actually won via the Compromise of 1877 when Democrats agreed not to contest his victory if all federal troops were withdrawn from the South. So, you know, so he's getting his just due, you know, a hundred or so years later later. They're uh, going to have 19th century contra dancing, uh, dinner and music, and period attire is encouraged. And this is part of events honoring Hayes' 200th birthday. Yeah, I, I was tickled by this story. We, we had a discussion in the newsroom about whether it's interesting. I thought it was. Uh, it's just kind of a neat way to get people to think about the history. And let's face it, that compromise was devastating for the South. It was one of mm-hmm. the worst compromises in the history of the country because it basically set black people back for decades after Reconstruction. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why doesn't Ohio have an agency to oversee the state's 800 police departments and what would one do if it existed? Layla. So this month, Jeffrey Scott, who's a former executive director of the Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy, sent legislators a proposal to create a panel that could provide clarity to the state's police departments, and this would make it much easier to sanction bad cops for misconduct. His letter to the legislators urged a proposal that would offer greater training for law enforcement leaders. He told reporter Olivia Mitchell that if agencies want to improve, it has to begin at the top, and it needs to start with police chiefs and sheriffs. He proposed that leaders in law enforcement be required to have college degrees and at least a decade of experience in the field and five years of supervisory experience. The current requirements in Ohio law are really outdated, he says. They call for those running for sheriff simply to have a high school diploma and a background that's clear of criminal activity and a smattering of supervisory experience. But but beyond that, He says police departments in Ohio really suffer from a lack of leadership and a lack of oversight and a lack of accountability and a lack of best practice standards. He said that a surprising number of departments have no policies at all or haven't updated them in decades. So his plan would mandate participation with the oversight panel and and every law enforcement agency in the state would have to meet policies and procedures that include use of force, citizen complaints and reviews, vehicle pursuits, disciplinary procedures and internal investigations, constitutional compliance and bias free policing. Many departments don't cover any of these topics at all in their current policy. So, well. This would have been the answer when East Cleveland Police Department was completely out of control, chasing people left and right. There was, we kept talking during that scandalous period that finally came to an end, as many of them have been indicted for crimes, about that nobody can control it. If, if the mayor and city council in East Cleveland weren't going to control it, the state had no vehicle to stop the behavior that was there. The attorney general couldn't do anything. If you had a body like this with some teeth... At least they could do it because let's face it, people were being abused left and right by East Cleveland police and they had the power mm-hmm. of the badge to, to arrest them. Right. And, you know, these people, everybody was afraid to get pulled over there. So they would speed away because the cops were so damn abusive and there was no way to control it. This is the way to control it. Yeah. The problem, of course, is pushback from police unions. And then there's the debate over whether this kind of oversight violates the home rule provision, which extends to police. So, I mean, what reform have police unions not stood in the way of? 
right? So yeah. it's a good, it's a good idea, and it's worth the conversation. I mean, the county has an engineer who's licensed by the state as an engineer. It's not like you don't have other positions in government that go through licensing. Right. I mean, like Olivia pointed out in her story, barbers have oversight in the state. But there's, you know, I do think that that it's it's yeah. it's the uh, it's the unions that don't want uh, that don't want this kind of, you know, strong hand it, on them. It might be a bad time to be making the argument because police departments are having such a hard time finding officers that they're all understaffed, and if you start raising qualifications now, it'll make it even more difficult. But it could be a long-term solution to the kind of nonsense that happened in East Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, you're on the clock to make this one understandable and accessible. How is the drive to improve public spaces in Cleveland becoming a big part of the conversation in planning circles this year? So it's not about driving. That's the thing you said, how to drive. And it's about public spaces. It's about being outside and people at the forefront rather than cars and building. And so public spaces are no longer an afterthought for all of these projects that Steve Lick goes through. And th- when he puts them together, what he's talking about is this could be a turning point for Cleveland with a whole new outlook of the city. And, and it will make it so much more enjoyable for people to be outside and really link our assets together. It could make us healthier. It could make us happier. It could bring new people to move to Cleveland. Uh, the Greater Cleveland Partnership even has made public space one of its five pillars of a strategic plan that was released in 2022. And they're about making sure the amenities in the region appeal to the next two generations. And they finally have accepted that this idea about geography and how you feel about your place infects your investment into it. So he goes into detail on a lot of projects that we talked about before, but the the connection between downtown and Lake Erie, that land bridge they want to build to North Coast Harbor, the bedrock plan for Tower City to expand to a riverfront park, uh, traffic separated bike lanes on Superior and Lorraine Avenues, uh, stabilizing Irishtown Bend and turning it into a 21 acre park, adding islands, which still blows my mind, to Lake Erie on the east side over by Gordon um, Park, just to make it not so you know, wavy for the shoreway and to really connect that space. Right now, it's just a sliver of a path between East 55th and East 72nd that you can walk on. Yeah, it, it's always the, the details that matter. If they can make each of those individual projects work, it's a spectacular remaking of much of the area. When you talk about it in the macro, it, it gets a little esoteric. But when you talk about what they're, they're, they're going to do around the Horseshoe Bend, it's very accessible. It is. And the thing is, Steve doesn't ignore the fact that this is Cleveland and we don't have unlimited money, right? We all of these projects are going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to get done. They're talking about decades worth of work and our city has to have the money and they have to have the willpower. So I, I, it would be great if every single one of these projects gets done, but I don't know that that's going to happen, but at least we're talking about it and planning for it. Well, and you watch as we're talking about the need for this money for things that would affect a lot of people the Browns are going to come in and ask for a big yeah. chunk of money for a new football stadium. It's coming and we'll have that big debate. And, and that's really going to pit neighborhoods versus a big stadium that's used eight times a year. 
Yeah, he mentions that. He mentions the need, obviously, for a new jail. Those are going to cost a lot of money. But it's funny. I went to the face-off on the lake on Saturday. I, I, I don't go to Browns games, so this is really only the third time I've ever been to that stadium. And I'm high up and looking down, and I'm like, this is crazy that right next to Lake Erie, like there's a bulkhead and then there's a parking lot. And you know, there are literally just cars pulling in, parking next to the lake. And that is about yeah. the use, worst use of space I can think of. Yeah, it was dumb to build it there, but they were in a rush to save the team. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A Cleveland man is suing the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority based on some pretty strong allegations of mistreatment by police. Getting back to our previous conversation about an agency to oversee police. Lisa, what is this case about? This is all in connection with a July 2019 arson case at a CMHA townhome on Bone Road. Uh, Juan Taylor was um, actually... uh, arrested in the case. He spent 20 months in the Cuyahoga County Jail. He was charged with four counts of attempted murder, 21 counts of arson, domestic violence, and child endangering. But the prosecutors finally dropped the charges on January 2022. Now, Taylor, in addition to suing the county, he's also suing former CMHA police detective Stacy Wright and Cleveland arson investigator David Baker. He says that Baker used junk science and he lacked proper training in in arson investigations, and he failed to preserve evidence at the site. And the the lawsuit alleges Baker is known to use disproven and discredited theories. Now, Stacy Wright, he accuses her of lying and also said that she did not check his phone because, let's go back to the fire. So there was a fire at his girlfriend's townhome in July 2019. The girlfriend said the candles probably caused the fire. She had candles lit at the time. Taylor said he was in Garfield Heights at the time, offered right his phone and said, I can prove it. Check my phone. I was in Garfield Heights at the time. She didn't check his phone for almost a year. And then she said that several people saw Taylor toss an M80 into the home and and cause the fire. But witnesses said they never told her that. Yeah. it, it And in the end, he is not charged with or convicted of anything. Correct. Right? I mean, it's completely clear. So this sounds like some very shoddy police work. If what he's saying is true, he deserves his day in court. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is one reason that Cleveland Hopkins International Airport can raise rental car fees by big amounts, as it proposes to do again, that largely Northeast Ohio residents are not affected? What's driving the big increase this time, Layla? Well, you're right that 96% of rental car customers at Hopkins are coming from elsewhere, so this will impact them most. But Susan Glazer tells us that the price to rent a car at Hopkins is set to increase by as much as $8 per day. But that increase will pay for bringing the car rental facility, which is currently located about two miles north of the terminal, back to the main airport campus. They say this is pretty common, rental car fees to finance improvements at airports, and and they say most travelers just accept it and that customers don't mind paying the fee in exchange for a higher level of service. But really, what choice do they have, right? right? (laughs) I mean, what else are you going to do? But rental car customers at Hopkins already pay other taxes and fees that increase the cost of rental by more than 20% above the base rate. They pay three separate fees. There's an 11% airport concession fee. There's a 6% transportation facility fee, which funds the shuttle service that 
takes people between the rental car center and, and the main airport terminal. And then there's a small vehicle license fee, which is less than 1%. It's collected by the rental companies to recoup the costs of registering and licensing vehicles. Apparently, though, that's that's all pretty par for the course. Airports in Columbus and Pittsburgh collect fees that add 26 and 31% respectively on top of the base rate for car rentals. But what do you think about this? Well, huh? I, I'm, I've been around long enough to remember when they opened that remote facility and, and it made no sense. They made it pretty far away from the airport, a huge inconvenience for travelers. You've already, today, you've already spent time before you fly in an airport, then you get delays, you're on the airplane, you're kind of in a bad mood at the end of all that. And in Cleveland, you had to get on a transport and go over to the facility to get the car. I, I never quite understood why they did that in many airports. And so the movement to bring them back to make it convenient makes a lot of sense. Uh, and again, th this isn't going to outrage anybody here because we don't pay it. Yeah, right, right. But yeah, I mean, returning returning uh, your car back to the rental and the, the stress of already, you know, trying to get to your flight on time is is enough. But then, you know, you've got to get on a shuttle and head back to the terminal and oh, yeah. what a headache. But but yeah, I don't I can't imagine anyone in, in our area will be outraged by this. It just feels like everybody pays for so much. It wasn't and it wasn't <laughs> just, the easiest travel is not it wasn't worth the it. easiest thing to get back to either. I mean there were signs, but it wasn't the easiest thing to find. When they put it out there, there was some thought it would be economic development. There was some weirdness that we covered back in the day about some of the land deals that took place out there. But it was never a convenience for the air traveler. And we're not a hub anymore. I'm a little bit surprised United didn't pitch a fit when they moved it out there to begin with because that affected their customers mm. when we were a hub. Uh, but, but it just makes sense if you're trying to get people to fly to Cleveland and enjoy things here to make, make it enjoyable. Of course, we need a new airport to do that because we all know our airport is a pit as we've discussed frequently, at least the car <laughs> facility might be bright and shiny. <laughs> I mean, it's not the worst airport. I'm just, I, I still maintain that. Then again, I'm not the biggest world traveler, but right, well, I don't know. Layla, I just saw it as one more. That. She doesn't think it's that bad. Layla. I'm sorry. She, what she's was saying the question? she doesn't think the airport's that bad. Well, I have. Uh, she has more experience than I do at the airport, but my my most recent experience was that it's it's garbage. <laughs> I I mean I I have a thing about public restrooms and and uh, this I I just can't accept the this it's so far below my standard at Hopkins. Yeah, I've received stray emails from people just saying, "Hey, I've heard you talk about the airport. I was just in the." The men's room, it's gross. It's more gross than it's, it's ever gross. been. It's gross. Well, I don't know well, about the men's room. But that's not a problem <laughs> with like the actual airport. That's a problem with the cleaning of the airport. Those are two different things. Yeah, but you know, s some facilities, you just can't get them clean. They're just dingy, <laughs> gross. They need to be gutted. And I just can't. Okay. We talked about the airport. We can't let it go by without having that conversation. <laughs> that's it for today in Ohio for a Tuesday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode.